I have um, tended to be interested in um, some of the early years when astronauts would go up into space and would be interviewed when they came down. Uh, and they are trained to be so scientific. And their training isn't spiritual, you know, to say the least. Um, but they're, often their experiences would be so profound that um, if you kind of <laughs> did a lot of research, you could find um, some of uh, what they said about their experience rather than just the um, scientific research. So one man from, um, I think it was Germany, when he came back and he was being interviewed, he actually said to the interviewer, I just wish somebody would ask me what it felt like to be up there. And so the interviewer said, well, what did it feel like? And he said, it felt like I was a, a star orbiting the earth. You know, and it, that's so simple. But did you see that in the newspaper? <laughs> you know, it's like, I felt like a star orbiting the earth. And there's so many, sometimes I, beautiful descriptions. This is from Ulf Merbold from the Federal Republic of Germany. He said, for the first time in my life, I saw the horizon as a curved line. It was accentuated by a thin seam of dark blue light, our atmosphere. Obviously, this was not the ocean of air I had been told it was so many times in my life. I was terrified by its fragile appearance. You know, that's incredible. I was terrified by its fragility. Do you ever feel like that sometimes about yourself, your own heart, life? It's like really interesting. And so many different ways that 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 awe is expressed. The earth was small, light blue, and so touchingly alone our home that must be defended like a holy relic. The earth was absolutely round. I believe I never knew what the word round meant until I saw the earth from space. You know, that's so simple, but it's so beautiful. That was Alekai Leonov from USSR, and this was from Edgar Mitchell, USA. Suddenly, from behind the rim of the moon, in long, slow-motion moments of immense majesty, there emerges a sparkling blue and white jewel, 
a light, delicate, sky-blue sphere laced with slowly swirling veils of white, rising gradually like a small pearl in a thick sea of black mystery. It takes more than a moment to fully realize this is Earth, home. And so it's, it's always that probably total amazement that we don't hear more of this, you know, that we don't get encouraged to take the time and space to get in touch with that um, tenderness. You know, today, you know, if we were paying attention you could feel the rain coming, right? You could feel the wind, and it, it's just like that slow build-up, and you can feel like it's been so long since it rained here. And just, ah, that feeling of just um, the majesty of it, the mystery of it. And when we hear in the loving-kindness practice that, you know, that what we would call the benefactor category, that we're meant to choose something that we can connect with. Anything that we can connect with, you know, that, that we can value that because it's, that's where we can find our heart. That's where we can find our mind, is, is in the heart, in the mind, <laughs> mind or heart or chitta, the same word for mind or heart. So whether we pick the rain or the wind or the earth or the sky or an elder or a child or a chipmunk or whatever we we find to connect with or a stuffed animal, it can be an inanimate object. What matters is that there, that any of us can find something that we connect with. So that tenderness and the care, the loving kindness, um, they're they're meant to help us get in touch with this mind-heart that is um, changing moment by moment newborn, it's newborn moments, newborn moments, newborn moments, it's that tender life, consciousness. So we, we know, you know, it's like, why are we paying attention to the breath as an anchor? Oh, well, it's alive. It's accessible. And, you know, when we look at the clouds today, were so amazing, right? They were just so beautifully uh, changing and so visibly moving. Uh, and we don't have a sense, you don't, you know, we don't have the sense that when we look up at the clouds that we have to let them go, right? They just, they come and go by themselves. And with the breath, it's like it comes and goes by itself. Do we have to let it go? Only if we're 
holding it tight, right? It just, it's going to go by itself. So, you know, so when you hear sometimes, it will let it go. It, there's no need to let it go. We just have to stop harassing it. We have to let it be. And so that whole sense when you can learn this from a cloud, you can learn this from the rain, you can learn it from anything that's alive, it's going to change. So any sense that we have that something's permanent is usually very deep and old. Like if we have some fear that feels like it's permanent, it's usually something, it's like a child is perceiving as permanent. And part of the meditation practice is that when we, when we have these triggered moments and when we feel like, oh no, this is permanent, it's really important that we remember that so much of the practice that we're anchoring with is learning that anything that appears isn't permanent. There isn't anything that takes birth that is permanent. So that that instruction to just let things be and to see if we can have the attention concurrent with something non-conceptually, even just for a few moments, um, the idea is that if we can do that with the breath, we can do that with sound, we might be able to do that with anger or a peak experience in meditation. Those are the ones we tend to get attached to the most. So this morning in the instruction, we started like with being on a high cliff, looking down on the seashore. And so that if we attempt to be with the movement of the breath at the belly, abdomen, for example, one of the ways um, that it's very important to train the attention is to have an open, wide awareness that can notice whatever, but say it's the movement of the breath from a distance. And to notice that we can usually not control the breath, that we don't force the attention, usually from that wide angle of the lens of awareness. And if we notice we're controlling or forcing, go to sound. Because usually being aware of hearing, there's usually not a sense that we have to force the attention. Usually the sounds will just... For example, (laughs) the sound of the rain. Look how easy that is. It just just comes to our attention. And we learn through that we don't have to do anything with the sound, right? Except to notice it. And that sound is so interesting um, as a place to learn that. To simply learn that we don't have to do anything with the sound, but be aware of it coming and going. We don't have to do anything with the breath, but notice it coming and going. We don't have to do anything with the thoughts. 
right? This is where it gets harder. So all that practice with the sound, with the breath, and then with the body sensations, when they're painful, we don't have to do anything with them, right? We don't just notice them. And if we can't be with it, you move away. We don't have to do anything with the over-enthusiasm where we want to tell everybody to come to the retreat because we're having such a good time, right? When we're having a great time at this, we want to turn people onto it. And then maybe two hours later, we're regretting we even thought about turning something onto it, right? It's like, oh, maybe not. Maybe we better. And, you know, you'll be like having a great time and it's like we're planning our next retreat. It can be five minutes later. We're never going to do one again. right? It's like we are that fickle. It's amazing. And that's part of a long retreat. The beauty of it, the, uh, the greatest teaching of it is to watch ourselves do that again and again and again. That we're making an interpretation about ourselves in relationship to what's happening. And it's, it's so painful that over time, it's like you're holding a hot potato and it hurts so much to do that, but you're putting yourself through it again and again, day after day, until you go, ouch, I don't want to do that anymore. And we drop it. How many times have you taken sleepiness personally? And then there's a point where you don't, and it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's sleepiness or awake. You know, it's just like it's that taking it personally, and then that you get this glimpse of not taking it personally. And then it's not, I'm a good yogi, I'm a bad yogi, (laughs) I'm equal to everybody. You know, it's that they're a bad yogi, they're a good yogi, you know, they're a bad person, they're a good person. So that open lens, that open awareness can teach us so much about that we don't have to do anything with what's happening but notice it. And then maybe we bring the lens into the surface of our body or the space around our body. And we start to notice the physical sensations of our body but not from a very microscopic lens. And we get a sense of then, can we be with this um, change that's happening, but very similar to listening to sound. It's like listening to a symphony of aliveness, of of physicality. And it's amazing, because if it's a symphony, you don't tend to get caught in you know, something painful, something neutral, something pleasant. It just rips. And then there might be some sounds and you start getting a sense that there's no in, inside, no outside, just textures coming and going by themselves. Sometimes. And then sometimes it's possible for the attention to be, as Jesse said the other maybe last night, but recently, where the attention can be much more like a a microscope or even laser. And the attention is right 
with the movement of the breath. There's no separation from the attention with that object. Or it could be that way with a sound, or it could be that way with the sensations in your toes. It doesn't matter. But what matters is you get that sense of, oh, this is possible. You might do it for two seconds, and then maybe the attention contracts or forces. It doesn't matter. But you get that sense of that you're knowing the sensations from the inside, not the outside. And often when we're aware of the sensations in that way, uh, they start to appear much less solid, much less substantial. So if you have this idea of my hand, and you start noticing just um, tingling that changes into disappearing particles that disappear, maybe there'll be that sense, you can't force it, you can't make it happen, but at some point the rug gets pulled out and you get, oh, my visual image of hand has nothing to do with my experience of hand, just like the astronaut, you know, that's like saying, I never saw the horizon look like this. This isn't what I was told. And it's very important to remember that it's not to make one angle or one lens of the camera, one lens of the awareness, better than another. It's all skillful means, but it's all training. So it's good to learn how to do an open awareness. It's good to learn how to do a microscopic awareness. And it's good to do that medium lens. It's good to have the training because ultimately, with the training, it just starts doing itself. It's all skillful means. There's more and more freedom. There's no better way. It's not like a regression. <laughs> you know, if you're with one angle of the lens and then you, you shift to another angle, it's not like it, it's any kind of failure. It's just what's um, more helpful at any given moment. And, you know, the direction of what I'm saying is that some of meditation is learning how to rest the attention. It's called solitude. It's called concentration. It's like it's that repression I was discussing with the fixed concentration. Vipassana, it's a compromise. It's... It's an anchor where you learn to rest as best you can. And with that rest, the idea is that it, that rest builds energy. Energy is courage. And it, it's, at times there will be that courage to be willing to explore. But exploration here means that we're willing to not know what something is, conceptually. When my um, nephew was learning to speak, when he was learning to talk, he would ask me, say, you know, say I went like this. And 
and he'd be like, he was just learning to talk, I just want to say, and he'd say, Auntie Michelle, what's that? And I'd say, oh, it's a bell. And he'd say, I know. And then it was with anything. He'd say, Annie Michelle, what's that? And I'd say, it's a candle. And he'd say, I know. And we went through the whole language. I mean, he learned to talk <laughs> like that. It was excruciating. Because it was. It was like, for me, it was like, <clears throat> okay, you don't know what it is. That's why you're asking me, right? It's like, we know you don't know. But he couldn't bear it. He, and he knew he couldn't bear the humiliation of not knowing what it was. So he had to have that, like, <clears throat> I know what that is. What are you, an idiot? Why are you telling me that? And it's like, well, because you just asked me. <laughs> but that was like, wow. It was so intense. It never stopped. It was just like, that's how he was, you know? But we're like that. I know what a hand is. What are they talking about? Why do they keep saying that? I know what the breath is. I know what rain is. So I don't need to pay attention to it. I know what fear is. Blah, 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 blah. We don't know. We don't know. It's never happened before. It's always new. And you can see where I'm going with this, that when we think we know what something is, we are not going to pay attention to it. And we miss life. We miss our life. Maybe it, you know, we get close to death and suddenly it's like, well, maybe I should be interested in this. But what happened? If we look at an iceberg and you see just, you know, we learn this. We learn so many things. You know, the tip of the iceberg. What we are aware of is the tip of the iceberg. Because we don't like that feeling of saying, oh, I don't know. And then we start to see as we get quiet and there's more energy building, the air is filling the balloon, and we, you know, that investigation is possible. So wise investigation is when we have that willingness not to know, but we know that we can't explore through the filter of aversion. And we actually can't explore through the filter of attachment. So say sleepiness comes up, if there's aversion to it and we're trying to explore the physical sensations and what's predominant? It's the aversion that's predominant. So the attention needs to go to exploring the disliking. And that's much harder than exploring the sleepiness. So the disliking, it's like a taste in the mind. Sometimes it's bitter. You know, sometimes when we're really angry and you know that the thoughts, like we're getting more right and more right and more right, sometimes I experience that as pleasant. You know, I'm just sitting there getting righter and righter (laughs) and righter and I'm getting further and further away from what's happening, right? And it's like I'm feeling, well, yeah, I'm really right. I'm sure I'm right. And then, you know, I go through it again, and I'm sure I'm right, right? And it's, we sit there and we do this, you know, where the, we can be the, um, the client, we can be the judge, we can be the lawyer, all in run, and you know, all in one. And we've, like, we've settled the case, 
but we haven't felt the anger. It's so painful. So that the Buddha called the suffering that ends suffering, that willingness to pull back the projection from the object of the aversion and to pull back the projection from the object of the attachment or the desire. You know, whether we're wanting a chocolate or we're wanting another good sitting, it's, it's wanting. But we get caught in the object rather than pulling back and going, oh, ow, wanting, ow, investigating how the experience is inside, not outside. And that, you know, this is hard. This is why a long retreat is so important because you know you might, you might be close to that <laughs> and somehow the resistance slips in and you got to go back to the sounds or breath. You can't do it. The aversion to the aversion will be so strong. Or we might start fantasizing, you know, and, and moving even further away. And if you notice that you've moved so far away that you're in a fantasy, just see if you can poke some holes in it. It's like a cloud over our head. Poke some holes and do some loving kindness. Because we're really usually just wanting some kind of care, connection. uh, And we get so out of touch with that. not neediness again, right? Heaven forbid neediness should come up. All the good ones, shame, neediness, guilt, you know, they're going to come up. And it's like, they're just like the thunder coming through right now. A storm comes through. One of my um, first teachers here was a forest uh, monk named Tungpulu Sayadaw from Burma. And uh, my first time with him, he said to me, um, make sure you keep a mind like water, not like a rock, but like water. And so whenever I go by the ponds and look at the surface, it's like today, the surface of the pond looks so tender and so alive, you know, and there was so much movement. And sometimes we, we forget that it's like the stillness is not in the service of no movement of the mind. The stillness is in the service of seeing the movement of the mind. Exploration, not just concentration. This is from Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj from the book I Am That. Imagination based on memories is unreal. The future is not entirely unreal. The unexpected and unpredictable is real. (laughs) That's so beautiful, right? 
the unexpected is real. Hence, I know. <laughs> I know what that is. I know. Versus, oh, I don't know. Krishnamurti said in one of his journals, just to be vulnerable, just to be sensitive, like that new green leaf that was born yesterday, to face rain, wind, darkness, and light. That that is meditation. It's being more sensitive than your eyeball. And with the strength of mindfulness, really strong, really open, really strong. You know, it's they don't they go hands in hand. It's just you know, we don't want our eyes dilated without protection. One of the um, very important teachings that we'll bring in more is the teaching about intention. So, for example, um, if I'm about to stand, it's helpful sometimes to be aware that there's a mental intention that is a cause of the physical movement. So, you know, we might just go like this and not be aware that there was actually a cause of that. And this might seem simplistic, but um, there are a lot of good things about being aware of intention before large movements. One of them is, is that if we don't notice the intention, we tend to lose the chance, we lose the possibility of being mindful for that experience. So if we notice the intention to stand, it's more likely that we might catch it, right? Wow. Intention to reach. If we notice the intention to reach, rather it be a knee-jerk response to some (laughs) thought, we, we might stand a chance to be alive and aware of being alive and be with that experience. So there's a lot of good reason for intention, but underneath it, it's starting to see that if an intention is colored by fear or an intention is colored by craving, it's going to be very different than intention colored by wisdom or an intention colored by compassion. That the more you're aware of this, the more you have choice, the freer we are. And you know how some people will say, well, one thing led to another, but actually, no, one thing didn't lead to another, actually. There's, a, there's an intention in each mind moment. So if I'm aware, I'm going to go scratch my cheek right now, and there's an intention to scratch, it will stop if there's an intention every moment, or, or that my arm will stop. We're not robots. This cuts through any idea that we're robots. It's like mind and matter, mind and matter. So if we're shifting to being aware of the rising movement of our breath, we can be aware of the physical sensations, maybe 
pressure moving, but there's also the knowing of it, mind. They're simultaneous, but you can distinguish them. They're inseparable, but they're distinguishable. And this is very important. It's like when you start exploring, well, what is consciousness? Hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. You know, it's like there's six sense doors, these holes. I've discussed this in some of my groups, but we have these holes. Ear, eyes. You know, we're always hearing, we're always seeing, we're always body sensations inside and outside the body, etc. And the mind door, can you imagine hearing consciousness? How sensitive the mind must be to pick up at the mind and the ear door, and, you know, the whole circuitry that allows us to have a moment of hearing with the speed of sound. And then we're asking you to be mindful of that. Wow. We wonder why we slip off. We wonder why the mind wanders, you know? To be aware of a thought. You've already tasted that. How oh, it's going so fast. But for the mind to pick up, you know, thoughts are much more ephemeral than the clouds going through right now. And what are they? Is it an image? Is it black and white? Is it color? Wow, it's so fast, we hardly know. And yet, wow, if you explore them directly, they're so utterly insubstantial. They're so light. And yet, when they have power over us, it's awesome power. And then if you turn and look at it directly, poof, it's gone. Wow. At the least, it could be interesting. So technically, it's said that each moment of consciousness is taking birth and and passing away. And there's three things that make up a moment of consciousness. Striker, receptor, ignition. It's like lighting a match, but the light happens and gone. So striker, receptor, ignition, if we had a box of matches, striker, receptor. Striker would be the sound. Receptor would be the ear door. Hearing consciousness would be ignition. And that happens with each sense door. Mind door, receptor, mind, (laughs) heart center, striker, thought, ignition, thinking. Mindfulness can catch up with this barely and notice that thinking has happened. Mindfulness can catch up with hearing. No, the hearing is happening. Hence, recognition is so critical and so powerful. So when we look at, well, who am I? Or who are you? That's the fun part, you know. It's who am I is the same as who are you. Um, Part of the investigation, part of that I don't know, I don't know really. Part of when we say wisdom um, tells me I'm nothing is is that sense of, it doesn't, the Buddha wasn't talking about annihilating anything to understand reality. But 
the closer you get, the more you look, you're going to see impermanence. Anicca. The closer you look, you'll start to see, as I started the talk, that experience isn't dependable because it's moving. That's all, because it's changing. It's undependable. And then anatta, that no matter how much you look at a thought, a smell, a taste, a touch, etc., it's, it's, it's merely insubstantial. So hence that the teaching is, you know, do we really want to cling to this? Again, that's the simplicity of it. Um, why would we cling to something that's not substantial? retreats ago um, I asked a very new yogi you know she had hadn't done a retreat before it was a 10-day retreat and I asked her just to look a little more closely at the sensations that were happening and she said I didn't have time to see her but she wrote me a note the sensations I noticed were similar to being in a parked car and having the car next to you back up I thought this was really cool. You know, it's such a great description, right? It was like the sensations were like being in a parked car and having the car next to you back up. You think you are the one moving, but you are actually sitting still. Except it reminds me more of this pulsating lightness floating. Wow, that's pretty simple. But there's so many ways things can be described, yeah? It, that was so moving to her you know it's like she you know we, we can say it's insubstantial but like that that was what she noticed and that was so much okay. this is from um, if I can find it this is from Thoreau Henry David. We often think we have to have a profound experience with something like the breath. Um, But I love this because he had a very profound experience with the humming of a telegraph pole. Pre-telephone pole, telegraph pole. At the entrance of the deep cut, I heard the telegraph wire vibrating like an aeolian harp. It reminded me suddenly, reservedly, with a beautiful paucity of communication, even silently. Such was its effect on my thoughts. It reminded me, I say, with a certain pathetic moderation of what finer and deeper stirrings I was susceptible, which grandly set all argument and dispute aside. I'm going to say that part again. Which grandly set all argument and dispute 
aside. A triumphant, though transient, exhibition of the truth. It told me by the faintest imaginable strain. It told me by the faintest strain a human ear can hear that there were higher, infinitely higher planes of life which it behooved me never to forget. As I was entering the deep cut, the wind which was conveying a message to me from heaven dropped it on the wire of the telegraph, which it vibrated as it passed. I instantly sat down on a stone at the foot of the telegraph pole and attended to the communication. It merely said, Bear in mind, child, and never for an instant forget that there are higher planes, infinitely higher planes of life than this thou art now traveling on. Know that the goal is distant and is upward and is worthy of all your life's effort to attain to. And then it ceased. And though I sat some minutes longer, I heard nothing more. A couple of seconds. A major glimpse of his lifetime. The humming of a telegraph wire. And my favorite part is that he sat down and wanted it to keep going, right? You know, it's like... <laughs> and though it ceased, I, I sat some minutes longer, but I didn't hear anything more. And how amazing. You know, it's like the faintest imaginable strain. You know, it's like, what are we looking for? You know, it's this idea, you know, what are we really thinking awakening is? But it's always while we're eating oatmeal, you know, Greg's oatmeal without the raisins. Whatever it is, you know, and often the road to that is disenchantment, disappointment. How, how long can we withstand the, with the disenchantment and disappointment, you know, of being with another step, another breath? That willingness to keep going and keep going until we understand. I was um, first landed on the Big Island in mid-80s, and um, I felt like it was home, but didn't move there for many, many years later. Um, And there's a mountain there called Mauna Loa, which is considered the largest mountain in the world by mass. And it, it's always had a, um, it's always touched me a lot, the, the um, purity of it and the magnificence of it. But I never went up there until this past summer. And you can drive, it's 13,000 something feet, and um, you can drive up this very narrow road till, to 9,000 something feet. Uh, so here I am, you know, I, I've always considered it this sublime, majestic, helpful, really helpful, 
visual experience, you know, just, I love that mountain. Um, So driving up, you know, you leave the bushes and the trees and you're going up and it's more and more just lava, all these strange shapes of lava. And then you get up to where you eventually park the car and it's, it's just pebbles. And I can't tell you how disappointed I was. I can't, you know, I still can't get across to my, even myself, how strangely, utterly, completely disenchanting and disappointed I was because I realized the largest mountain in the world was just these little black and red pebbles, you know, and it was visceral, you know, it's just like, oh, I've been looking at this my whole life here on the Big Island, and it just wasn't what I thought it was. And I had that experience the first time I, I experienced my tongue, not the visual image of it, but just sitting it, and I like, I got, it's, this is what I mean by you might experience your tongue many, many times, but it was this feeling of like, oh, it was like the pebbles, it was just kind of heavy in my mouth, and it's like, this is Vipassana, you know, you're, you're just like, you, you kind of go, oh, that's who I think I am, right? And this is so important, because usually you have to go through like, oh, there was a, a Peggy Lee song when I was in college, that uh, my freshman year before I dropped out, that it, I don't know if you remember of it, but it's it's this ultimate in disappointment, it's like, is that all there is? You know, and I think of that as the you know Vipassana you know refrain you know the court. Is this all there is? You know, oh no, you scurry into meta. <laughs> it's like kindness, yeah. You know, and it's very important for us to know. Nizargadatta, Sri Nizargadatta says it. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And that's so important. Love is a truth. And wisdom is a truth. And we tend to prefer love. And so, you know, if you're wondering again why Vipassana can be a little difficult and why we ask people to bring some kindness in is because it takes courage to feel your little baby finger Really, not, not as a thought about it, not as a word you've learned, not as any kind of past experience or memory, but just in the moment. And to know there's often, at, well, sometimes there will be a great impact with just maybe once in a retreat. There'll be something, there'll be some insight that happens with it. And it, it takes a lot of patience, but it's worth it. When I um, was here as a cook in 1978, one of the teachers that came and kept coming was um, Ruth Dennison. Some of you might know of her. And she died um, this year. Uh, And she was a real um, great teacher and quite a character. And for, instead of walking meditation, you know, she stayed stayed with you all the time. 
Um, and for walking meditation, you know, the bell would ring at the end of the sitting, and we'd all go down with her downstairs here. Um, and she called it romper room, romper room, romper room. And she had this old record player <laughs> that played 45s. I'm not kidding. This, and she'd, um, we'd all be down there, and she'd put this music on. <laughs> this was every walking period. And... Um, <laughs> You had to dance to the music. <laughs> Rampa room. Um, it, it made a big impression on me. I didn't have any insight. Uh, but um, I had so much aversion, I can't even tell you. I, I would come out of that downstairs just ready to kill somebody. I was so mad. You know, just, I hated Rampa room. And... <laughs> On top of it, she always picked on me. I mean, the worst part was I'd finally think, okay, I'll do a romper room. You know, and I'd go, you know, like this, and she'd say, Michelle, that's not mindfulness. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm not just like, oh, leave me alone. I hate this, you know. I just wanted to go outside and do lifting, moving, placing. I can tell you if you had to do romper room, you'd love lifting, moving, placing. You'd just think, oh, God, please give me lifting, moving, placing. But what, after she picked on me and picked on me, she would pick on me every time I was just concentrated. When I would lose myself in the movement, and I'd be like blissed out. It'd be like, ah, she's out of my back, you know, I'll just do it. And she'd like be, Michelle, you're not being mindful. And I didn't know what she was talking about. But I would lose my sense of I in that movement. But mindfulness is when you understand that the movement of the arm, the arm is insubstantial. You're understanding that there never was an I. There never will be an I. It's just, it's a, it's a false concept, that's all. So you're losing your sense of ego through understanding, not absorption into something. Concentration is you lose your sense of self through absorption into something. But this, the pasta is much more staccato. It's staccato meaning that things are coming and going, coming and going, and we tend to like the concentration. But we can't get to the wisdom, as each of us have said in our own way, without that willingness to be disenchanted at times. disenchanted with our false ideas of how things are. So the shift is toward the more we start to understand the impermanence, the undependability, and the insubstantiality, there's a kind of tastelessness to experience. And the experience will start to seem more refined at times and um, more neutral. So we go from being these intensity junkies and drama junkies to realizing that there's a different kind of taste. uh, The Buddha called it the taste for liberation. 
and I know you've all experienced it, it there'll be times where it's, it's quiet, but it's the quiet of the mind not reacting with aversion, not reacting to attach, with attachment, but just interested, just willing to see what's next, to the willingness to feel body sensations or sounds or see thoughts or emotions or whatever, just as they are, not from some past memory not from our imagination, but from dropping into the unexpected and that the possibility of that. And this um, isn't indifference. The heart is not shut off with indifference. The heart is very connected and very quiet and peaceful with things as they are. The mind can be quiet, or the awareness can be quiet and peaceful with things as they are, even if there's super aversion in the mind. It's just like, it's just aversion, no problem. So I'd like to end with a... um, part of a story from George MacDonald from the book The Golden Key, written in 1867. And it's about um, a little boy and then a little girl who are trying to find um, what this golden key is that this little boy found, what it what it's meant to open. And they go on a very long journey, uh, and they get separated. And eventually, the girl, Tangle, comes to meet the old man of the earth. And so, this is just part of the story. Then the old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave, raised a huge stone from it, and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down, That is the way, he said. And Tangle said, but there are no stairs. And the old man of the earth said, you must throw yourself in. There is no other way. So the conceptual mind is the stairs we keep wanting, right? We want to keep knowing that there's another step than solid, a solid step. We want to say, instead of listening to this just as it is, we want to say bell and get done with it and move on to the next thing. There's a total difference between the word bell and the direct experience. But there's no other way to the direct experience but jumping into the direct experience. You can't get there through the word bell. That's all. You can't get to the experience of rain through the word rain. That's all. You can't get to the experience of fear through the word fear. That's all. 
It's that deeper wisdom. It's the understanding, insight that's coming from jumping in, falling in to the experience, however you want to describe it, non-conceptually, pre-verbally. Um, and we know if, it, if you don't want to jump, don't jump. It's fine. So rest, explore, rest, explore. It's your life. Don't miss it. Let's sit for a minute. Love tells me I'm everything, and wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. So it's time for walking and then the metta chant sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.